again. This is Paul Manis, and this is The Man Behind the Letters. What we're doing is uh, taking a look at the Apostle Paul from the perspective of the relationships that he had, trying to take a look at the actual nature of how he treated people, how he engaged with people, some of his methods of communicating with people as a way of uh, underscoring his theological points, but taking them from a more human perspective. So welcome, and let's continue. In our next podcast, we'll go over St. Paul's background as it's presented to us in Luke's writings, as well as St. Paul's own words in his letters. It's a fascinating account of his Jewish background and desire to defend his Jewish faith before his conversion experience on the so-called road to Damascus. In this session, I want us to look at aspects of my methodology for exploring Paul. That is, I want to look at the relevant materials and issues that I have used to explore Paul's life. Our approach to St. Paul's writings is is based on historical details, uh, understanding of human relations, and the nature of Paul's conversion experience, or some would call it his transformation to being a disciple of Jesus. That is to say, If we are to make statements about Paul's nature, about his character as a person, his actions, the places that he visited, and the nature of those visits, and the relationships with various people along the way, we need reliable sources of information and as accurate as possible reflections on those sources. Some scholars have questioned a great deal of the material that we have in Paul's life and have wondered whether or not any of it or some of it is actually true. Fortunately, the world of scholarship has many faithful women and men who have not allowed assumptions, presuppositions, uh, wrongly characterizing the nature of the historical material, and allowed themselves to be prejudiced by all of that to discount Paul's historical evidence, his journeys, or even his mental state. I recall my early starting point in studying Paul. I began by reading books by F.F. Bruce. Uh, I found them in my dad's library. I discovered additional works by Westcott and Hort, A.T. Robertson, J. Gresham Machen, Bruce Metzger, and, and others. And later I was able to study under Ralph Wright, Everett Harrison, and the dutiful scholarship of George Ladd. Today, there is, an, there is little reason to be other than astonished at the reliability, historical accuracy, and even verifiability of St. Paul's activities during the years after Jesus' ministry and before Paul's death around 64, 65 CE. Beyond the solid historical background, analysis of the forms of communication, the rhetorical styles of the biblical literature has aided our understanding of the material's social context. Our glimpse into the period's situation in life, Sitzimleben, and the social dynamics have radically grown in support of our grasping Paul's work 
and he as a person in that work. Recently, work on the nature of faith and trust as a component to epistemology have taught us to listen more astutely to the language of being in Christ, of being faithful, and the impact of prophetic communities on validating conversion experiences. In a book entitled Paul the Apostle, The Triumph of God in Life and Thought by Christian Becker, he suggests that Paul writes his letters based on immediate circumstances surrounding the specific problems or needs of the gatherings of believers as Paul encountered them. How often did Paul mention something about the church situation or a letter or an individual who has arrived to meet with him? That is, Paul is writing, suggests Becker, out of a sense of contemporaneousness, He is responding to the concerns that people have. His thoughts become inspiration based on his discernment of the needs of the people. Paul's spirit-led sensitivity is measured by the good news of Jesus concerning human relations and circumstances and how the two come together. In that regard, I accept that Paul writes from the heart of the Spirit, as a counselor, teacher, speaking out of his coherent understanding of the gospel to the community's specific contingencies. Paul's not intending to be dogmatic about what he is saying. He is intending to be honest and forthright. He desires to teach maturity and dependence on the Spirit in the life of the communities and the individuals there. He allows the Spirit of Jesus to guide his thinking through the issues that come before him, and then he writes his letters based on those thoughts. Professor Chloe Lynch, in a milestone book on ecclesial leadership, uses the work of Ray Anderson to address what I believe St. Paul intuitively knew. The same Spirit working in Jesus was now at work in the people of the church. Paul looks for paradigms within the biblical witness having to do with atonement, reconciliation, and grace, and how they address his moment that he needs to write about. Paul's understanding of his own conversion and the nature of the incarnation were not subjects for theological excurses, but were meant to be transformative in how people get along with one another. So we'll have to spend a bit of time on Paul's transformation to understand this man, not of letters, but behind the letters. To follow Walter Bergman, Paul also relies upon a historical and biblical memory of prophetic words and themes to focus on what the emergence of the Messiah finally means to Israel and the Gentile world. As a Jew, this event of the coming one was to usher in the long-awaited plan of God's covenant. So Paul uses the core of his knowledge of the gospel within covenant history to be the foundation out of which he speaks. The spirit that led Jesus to say, 
the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, was the wisdom for which Paul, like Solomon, prayed. Paul's desire and interest was that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, be formed in his readers. Ray Anderson calls this the inner logic of the gospel as addressed in the praxis of faith. Some people have simply said this is an illustration of letting the Spirit move and speak, as when Jesus suggests that we are not to be overly concerned about what we are to say, for, quote, in that hour it will be given to you, end quote. Was that not In fact, what Paul experienced so many times as he stood before real-world opportunities to give account for the faith that was in him? In his letters, he addresses what he knows firsthand about a community's issues or what he's heard from others about their situation. He speaks out of his newfound understanding of God's work in history, the incarnation, and the gospel of grace which were long foretold in the Old Testament prophetic voice and now revealed in the reconciling work and the word of Christ through his spirit to the local community. So our goal, again, then, is to listen intently to what Paul has to say indirectly about himself and his work. So we'll also be following what the gospel writer Luke has to say about Paul because Luke also shares with us in the book of Acts the travels of Paul. So Luke was an early Christian physician who is believed to be the writer of both the book of Acts as well as the gospel. And they chronicle Paul's journeys and dealings with politicians, religious individuals, and the churches that he came upon or created. Luke even includes sections where he speaks in the first person plural, as in, we arrived in port, referencing their boats disembarking in a particular city. There are a few extra-biblical works around the second century, the Acts of Paul and Tekla, but we'll set those aside because they don't give us direct historical information about Paul. For all intents and purposes, all that we have of his life and behavior is based on the material in his letters and the book of Acts. So we do have some extra biblical timestamps, and we will then note them in appropriate places. We have corroborative information is somewhat limited, but internal consistency is ready at hand. In his book, Paul's Early Period, Rainer Reisner has provided a significant and thorough review of the scholarly work defining the chronology of Paul's activities. Reisner provides a balance between the autobiographical sections and the construals from Paul's words and his ministry as outlined in the book of Acts. We'll also tie in William Paley's fascinating work on the unintended consequences and the comments by Luke and Paul, which provide coincidental corroboration to Paul's movements and interactions. Paul was industrious and engaging, and our understanding of him must consider this information. To profile Paul, we must also be open to the material that presents him in his activities. 
there's no other Paul for us to study and to know. The engagements of Paul with others are also part of the fabric that makes Paul, Paul. We also learn from social anthropology that we must be astute students of the times and cultures in which we find Paul acting. He does not exist as a Western man of the 21st century. His thinking is not a product of our theological seminaries, and certainly he's not read any of the theologies that we have written. We know him as we see him in the age in which he lived. A great deal of new material is becoming available to help in that area. Murphy O'Connor, in his 1994 book on Paul, has a great deal to help us. From those sources, working to understand a chronology of his activities, we can trace Paul's movements and development in working with the churches and addressing the issues which arose. We know much about this man. In the late 1800s, William Ramsey, the historian, wrote, St. Paul, the traveler and Roman citizen, in which Paul's travels were meticulously followed. From 1912, we have missionary methods, St. Paul's or ours, from the historian Roland Allen. And since that time, we have major studies on the sociology, political climate, and cultural profiles of the areas of Italy, Greece, Asia Minor, Syria, and Palestine, where Paul's story was first lived out. So we will follow Paul's journeys and the integration of his life experiences with the Messiah Jesus and see how his understanding of Jesus addresses the communities into which Paul wandered. A key to understanding the man behind the letters is also to address Paul's faith in Jesus. We're not after Paul's theology of faith, rather his genuine belief in words and actions of Jesus and in the Spirit as he tried to follow that leading. For Paul, the entire Old Testament became a witness to the righteousness of faith, and therefore a part of his own life, his decisions, and his process of discernment. The statements he makes about the Holy Spirit also address his conviction about guidance and insights. Paul's understanding of Jesus' grace, Jesus' mercy, and guidance is based upon trust in the Holy Spirit. These benefits from God clearly impacted Paul's understanding of covenant reconciliation, redemption, and the future plans, the eschatological plans that God was bringing about as he constructed a new community of people. Again, this was a radical historical event for Paul. These transformations were to now drive Paul's interactions with others. Again, our interest is the person of Paul as he lived and spoke with these people and churches out of that dynamic historical change that he saw beginning to take place and humanity's transformation as it engaged with the Holy Spirit of Jesus the Messiah. So we might say we're looking for the heart of Paul in his words and actions as he grasped, or better, was grasped by these events. I might even suggest here that Paul would expect others to do as he has done. Though his conversion experience was unique, the outcome was for him the same as 
our faith experience might be for us. Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.16. That is, we too have the mandate because of our own experience with Jesus to let our light shine and our voice be heard as Paul did. We also should speak out of the presence of the Spirit in us, words that set people free, as Paul did. For Paul, the gospel translated people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Our participation in the reconciling work of God through Christ should have the same impact on people and therefore connect us in the Spirit to what Paul was doing. If we bear within ourselves the same burden of the cross, then our actions and message to the world around us should speak to the freedom that Christ offers, setting people free from the bondage to the principles of this life that hold them down. Our message should not contain our own plan for a structure of existence that is added to the gospel. Like Paul, we should share with friends and family and strangers the message of the unknown God, who is the way, the truth, and the life. As Paul taught, there is only one gospel of Jesus Christ. All who have received the same spirit that Paul received should have the same message. Lest that we think that Paul was some converted spiritual X-man who powered through life with renewed strength and purpose, we need to read his comments about his own weakness and humility with respect. Paul had to deal with his own sense of insecurity and inability to do his task as we do. Rather than overlay his own weakness with a self-help plan for improvement, Paul was confessional as a way of pointing to the inability of humanity to grow outside of Christ. In Romans 7, in strong psychological terms, Paul confesses his failure, not his success, to conquer his own weaknesses. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Paul publicly admits that he cannot do what is required of him. There is no hiding his life from us. There is no mind over matter or will over desire. It's a confession of his lack, not his strength. When he turns the corner in the passage to the question of, then why bother? He points to the only source that has sustaining power over the inconsistent and undisciplined character of human life, the law of the spirit of life, Romans 8.2. Again, Paul speaks strength out of weakness. Where we are wont to speak strength from our desire and intentions on self-improvement or spiritual discipline, for Paul, it is the presence of the Spirit of Christ who sets us free not only from our sin, but from our responsibility to better ourselves by ourselves. The transforming power of the God who creates ex nihilo is the source of our freedom. We, too, can sing the victory song, not because we have overcome, but because through Christ we are more than conquerors, Romans 8.38. Ray Anderson would suggest that Paul sees the reality of life in Jesus rather than a possibility of life 
in Jesus. The reality of the incarnation and the eschatological understanding overcomes already in the person of Jesus. That is Paul's message and ours and how we can know much about him. Through our weakness, he is made strong. And the church has lost this vision. It it is the servant community that serves, not the triumphant church. We might say that Paul went from being self-assured and confident before his conversion to a more humble and service-based life. He emptied himself as Christ had emptied himself. So we'll talk about the confidence which led him to persecute the early believers. He watched as Stephen was killed and ordered early believers persecuted. We'll trace the blindness of his own conversion transformation where he saw forgiveness at work and experienced commissioning to serve others. Those are clearly laid out before us in his letters and in the book of Acts. That transformation and calling to build up the people of God is the character and the mission of the man behind the letters. <music>